If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. Well, what's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about systems. We're talking about the real world. We're talking about what does it look like to model game mechanisms, game systems based on real life, real world stuff. And we're talking to Ben Rossett. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Gabe. It's great to be here. Yeah, man. Really glad to have you here. Now, you've designed some really great games, games that have done very well in the marketplace. Search for Planet X, which is a super interesting game, one game we're going to talk about here in a little bit that does kind of model itself uh, after some real world systems. You've got Brewcrafters, Homebrewers, but also the Between Two games, Between Two Cities, Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig, which is it takes a long time to type into the search bar. But uh, you've designed some really cool games and several of them based on real life systems, real world stuff. You got some really cool games coming out soon. I'm excited to chat about here in just a minute. And so, yeah, man, this is a really cool topic that I feel like a lot of designers experience. And so let's let's maybe put some terms to it. Let's put some more specifics to it. And you're a guy that's been doing it for a while. But uh, anyway, before we get into all of that, really glad to have you on the show. But who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Thanks. Yeah. So I've been designing games since about 2008, 2009. And I always enjoyed playing games growing up. And then kind of as an adult, I found uh, modern games, hobby games uh, through Catan, as so many people did, and found a game group uh, where I lived at the time in Washington, D.C. And one of my good friends from the game group, we used to hang out and play games all the time. And one day he showed up with this prototype and he's like, hey, another friend of mine and I have been trying to design this game. Do you want to play it? Do you want to take a look at it? And I was like, yeah, that's cool. And we did, and I played his prototype, and I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. He actually, he designed his own game. It never even occurred to me that I could do that. And I went home that night, and I started thinking about ideas for games. And ever since that night, back in 2008, 2009, uh, I've been a game designer and just been uh, addicted to designing games. And uh, I love it and, and hope to continue to be able to do it for a long time. Yeah, very cool, man. All right, let's get into the topic. Let's talk about turning real life stuff, real world systems into game mechanisms. Let's get a good working definition. What does that mean exactly? Like, Give me a good frame to put around this conversation. So to me, I like to define the difference between what I call systems modeling and world building. Uh, and systems modeling in terms of uh, tabletop hobby games to me, is making games that are based predominantly on past or current real-world events. So this is the subject matter for your game. Versus world-building, which would be making games based predominantly on fictionalized events. 
So as a designer, I strongly prefer to do systems modeling to make games based on on real past or current events. Okay, that makes that makes sense. And so basically it's all right, the Battle of Normandy back in World War II. I want to take that event, that conflict, and turn it into a game. Or uh, I'm, I'm thinking if I'm going to have you know, a paper mill or, or some kind of factory or something like that in the real world, and then taking that and turning it into systems and mechanisms and, and things like that. Am I on the right track? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, versus like world building might be, uh, Scythe is a great example of a game that's predominantly world building, right? So it's making games based predominant based on fictionalized events, right? In the mid 1900s, after World War One, there were no huge mechs walking around Europe, right? So that game is world building. It is making a game about fictionalized past events, whereas your paper mill game might be making a game about an actual industry that really existed in the early 1900s, and that would be systems modeling. Yeah, gotcha. And I feel like. I don't know the way my brain works, maybe the way a lot of other game designers brains work. You're just living life. You're doing your normal daily deal. And then you see something, right? And you go, Ooh, that could be an interesting game. And a lot of times it is something in the real world that is a system of, of maybe going to a, a mall or you're watching the garbage truck pick up your, your trash. You're like, Oh man, that'd be a really interesting system to create for like a game. Like how do the garbage trucks get around? And you're trying to do it more efficiently than the other garbage truck companies. And you're trying to bring in more customers. And, and it's such an interesting puzzle to, to have in your brain and then turn it into a game. And so tell me about your, your brain. How does it work? Do you, are you doing the same thing where you see something in the world like, Oh, let's, let's make a game out of that. Like, tell me about your, almost your genesis of kind of how you got into creating these games and, and why. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly how my brain works. So I just walk around and I see things that are happening in the real world and I go, Oh, that seems really interesting. What would a game about that be like? And the first game that I ever tried to design like this, uh, when I was way back when I was, uh, uh just getting into game design, I was at a farmer's market and there were like six different vendors selling tomatoes at the farmer's market. And I was like, this is so interesting. There's like six different guys that are all selling the exact same product. How does one of them get me to come over to their table and buy tomatoes from this guy, as opposed to just walking five feet, you know, and buying uh, tomatoes from the guy right next door. And I was like, this is just really interesting. How does this work? What is this? How does this system work? And so I went home and tried to kind of model that system and design a game about kind of selling commodities in a farmer's market that are not differentiated from the guy that's selling right next door. Uh, That ended up becoming my first published design, which is Mars Needs Mechanics, which is not about farmer's markets at all because the publisher wanted to change the theme, which is which is fine. They didn't they didn't think tomato selling they didn't was going to be tomato a, selling was going to be a really exciting <laughs> game, I guess. So they wanted to make it about Mars instead. Uh, but uh, but at its heart, that game is just a supply and demand kind of um, game about buying and then selling commodities uh, that are no different from you know just uh, simple simple commodities that are undifferentiated. And so that's what that's what that game is is and that's where it came from was me wanting to try to model this this real world system that i saw and yeah that's just how my brain works i mean i i can't create games about uh you know zombies and orcs and uh, you know and wizards and when it comes to that stuff i just don't know where to start i just feel kind of lost in trying to build a new world from scratch uh it works for me to really look at an existing system and internalize that and then try to represent it in board game form yeah, very cool. And you also bring up a really good point 
there in that you can create a system based on something in the real world that then lends itself to a retheme and it, it still makes sense and people still get it because it is still drawing from a real life thing. And so even if you never told anybody, hey, this is actually based on farmer mar farmers markets, tomato selling vendors, like if you, you don't have to say that, but people will get it because they've experienced that kind of thing. And so when they play a game, even if it is about Mars and science fictional kind of stuff, it's it's rooted in something they've already experienced. That's exactly right. And I think that that is uh, really helpful to allow players to get into games that are based on real world systems because their brain already intuitively understands what this is, right? It's something that they've seen. It's something that they know. And they can say, oh, okay, this happens because of this, just the way that it happens in the real world. That makes sense. I intuitively understand the rules. And so games based on uh, systems, uh, real world systems modeling can um can be easier to teach, can be easier to, to get up and, and get people into the game because they already understand it from what they've seen in the world. Yeah, definitely. And that actually leads right into my next question, which is what is it about these kinds of games that draws people in? Because a lot of times players, you know, they like orcs, they like fantasy stuff, they like science fiction, whatever. But there's a lot of gamers out there that really love real life kind of stuff. And you've designed games based on brewing beer. And there's lots of like, I, I remember uh, Dave Beck had a game called Distilled on Kickstarter recently, and it made like almost half a million dollars. And it's about making alcohol. And you're like, what? What? That's not about orcs or zombies or anything like that. But people are drawn to these kinds of real life, quote unquote, games. Why is that? What is it about these systems, these games that really brings people in? Well, I, I think a couple of things. Uh, one, I think it's the ability to see something out in the world that you would like to engage in, but you just know that you're never going to really be able to do that in your actual life. And so it's being able to to uh, play that role or being able to engage with that with that part of reality that you think is really cool that you know you're never going to get a chance to do. Uh, I think this is kind of why this is one reason why I think farming games actually are quite successful because, to a person who's not a farmer, farming seems kind of cool. You're like, well, I get to create things. I get to grow food. I get to nourish myself. I get to nourish others. I get to create this thing coming out of the ground. Like that seems really rewarding and satisfying. But in real life, it's hard backbreaking work, right? People, it's hard to be a farmer. Uh, and most people won't get the opportunity to do it or just don't want to do it because it's so hard but you just get to experience that good part of this real world system that you see uh, that maybe you would like to engage with. And it's just much easier to do it in board game form than it is to actually go out and do the real farming. Uh, and so I think that being able to engage in, in systems uh, that, uh, that you would like to engage in in the real world, like flying an airplane, for instance, but you're, you're not a pilot. You're never going to get to fly an airplane. Uh, so it's just fun to be able to engage with that part of reality in, in a board game form. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because with the farming game, to your point, it is a fantasy. Even if it's not swords and orcs and battling and things like that, it's still fantasy in the fact that the person playing it is probably not a farmer. I, I can I can see very few farmers wanting to come in after a long day of farming and go, let's play Agricola. I mean, maybe, but probably not. Uh, but as a person who has no experience with it, it is kind of like this faraway thing that you, you don't know about. And so you get the chance to sit down at a gaming table and do it in a very just kind of casual, fun way. And you get to, you know, get rid of all the extra stuff, the dirt and the, you know, the sweat and the hurting yourself because you picked up something that was too heavy. Like you get to get rid of all that and have this kind of fantasy. And I guess the same thing with lots of other systems like, um, 
I don't like Ticket to Ride even like some of these other games where you're building a route. So you're building a system almost as if like you're the CEO or the architect and you're creating something like you don't get to do that in your normal life more than likely. And now you get to sit back and you get to be in charge. And it is a little bit of a power fantasy kind of thing. And am I on the right track? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think I think you're, you're definitely on the right track. And on the flip side, uh, I think that this is why, for instance, uh, you know, games about sports don't usually work and aren't usually really popular games about baseball, basketball, because to me, it's more fun to actually go do that real thing in the real world, right? It's more fun for me to actually go to the park and actually play basketball than it is to move a little cardboard shit around a map and simulate playing basketball. And it's really easy for me to do that. I can walk to the park in five minutes, grab a basketball and be playing basketball. Whereas I can't be farming five minutes from now, or I can't be flying an airplane five minutes from now. Uh, and so I think that it's not great to model a system about something that's super easy to do that everybody does every day because it's kind of more fun to actually do it in the real world than it is to do it in board game form. So uh, when I look for systems to model, I actually look for things that are not really easy to do in the real world, but that people would like to do if they could. And uh, I think these are great systems to, to model in, in games. Yeah, absolutely. And I think feel is also a really important thing to bring up right here because most sports board games don't feel like the actual sport. Like you don't feel like you're playing. You know what I mean? Like if you go out and play basketball, that, that's quick and fast paced and you're, you're moving around and you're making quick decisions and that kind of stuff. But if you're playing a basketball board game, a lot of times you're just staring at your cards, you're staring at a board, you're taking a lot of time. It doesn't feel like that. And even like basketball video games have that same feel. And obviously you're not literally running and sweating and things like that, but you're having to make those quick decisions. You're getting the ball to the right player at the right time to hit the right shot. Like you're still that that fast paced. And so the basketball and football video games continue to do really well, but board games don't. But I'm wondering if it's just as much about feel as anything else, because a lot of people that would be drawn to a sports game probably played the sport. They probably love it. They probably experienced it and they know how it feels. And then they play the game, the board game, and they're like, oh, this doesn't feel right. And it, and so they're more drawn. Let's go do it for real. Let's do it in a video game form where it actually feels right. Versus farming, where most of us haven't done it. So we can't say, oh, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like farming because we don't know, <laughs> right? It's, we don't have that experience. So I wonder if that also plays into it. Is that something that, that I need to be thinking about with my system as well as like the feel of it? Yeah, I think so. And when, when I actually start uh, designing a game uh, based on a real world system, I definitely think theme first and then want to match my major mechanics to that theme. Uh, and it, it's important to accurately kind of as accurately as you can represent what is really happening in the real world. So think to yourself, what mechanics would put me into the world of this theme? What mechanics would represent reality the best? And stick to that faithfulness to the theme with your mechanics uh, as long as you can until you inevitably need to simplify some things about the game in order to, to make it a, a playable game and to you know, remove exceptions in your design. Uh, and then you, know, you can carefully consider what kind of compromises you can live with uh, that might loosen the theme and mechanics integration just a little bit in order to make a good game, uh, but but you want to be uh, want to be capturing and marrying that theme to the mechanics that represent that theme as closely as possible to get that feel right. Yeah, it's a really good point, but it's also something that might end up 
messing with your your feel. For instance, I was designing a football game a while back, a game called Dungeon Ball, and I, it used to have penalties in it because obviously football has penalties, and that makes sense because that's part of the actual game. But the problem was in the board game, it made the game slow down, and it just added extra steps, extra rules, extra things to think about and worry about. It wasn't fun at right. all for anybody. And it's like, well, let's just cut that out. Like, we don't need penalties. It's it's a board game. Who cares? You know. And so we got rid of that. But the, if if you're a football person, like you might come into that and go, well, there's no penalties. That didn't make sense. Right. It didn't feel right all of a sudden, even though it made the game better, made the game more fun, made the game play faster. It kind of messed with the feel a little bit. And so it's almost like a, a dial and you're trying to find the right right place on the dial of, of, you know, what to take out, what to keep in, that kind of thing. So tell me your own your own process, you know, with your farmer's market, with your uh, brewing games, with Search for Funny X, any of those, you know, maybe little stories or anecdotes where you're trying to figure out, okay, what's the best place to be as far as like what to leave in, what to take out, you know, what to keep the feel of the system, but also to make it as fun as possible. Tell me about that. Right. Well, uh, first of all, uh, I want to say that when I, when I start designing uh, a game based on a real world system, uh, I, I do a research kind of like a, uh, a writer or a novelist might do research into their topic for a novel. And I think that this is really important. Um, it can be amazingly helpful. Uh, so I recommend going beyond just, you know, reading articles on the internet about the topic that you want to want to model, go interact with that system in the real world, talk to people who know about the system that you're trying to model. So for brew crafters, when I started designing that game, I went and took tours of craft breweries and I talked to the people that actually ran craft breweries and I saw the machinery and I took, uh, took tours and I learned about the ingredients that are being used. And I was actually there in the space and uh, experiencing it in real life. Uh, when I designed homebrewers, I went out and actually helped a friend uh, to homebrew for an entire Saturday. Like I spent a day homebrewing. I don't homebrew myself. I'd never homebrewed, but I spent a day doing it with a friend and spent the whole day with him learning about the process. Uh, I also think reading books and watching documentaries about your topic is great. So uh, I've got a game coming up called First in Flight, uh, which is about the Wright brothers and the invention of powered flight. And I read a great book by David McCullough uh, about the Wright brothers um, for the search for planet X game. There was an IMAX movie at the Chicago planetarium where I was living at the time about the search for planet X. And I went and I watched the movie and I talked to people at the planetarium that actually know about the search for planet X. Uh, so, um, so doing that first uh, to get yourself ready, uh, I think is, is super important. And then to what you were speaking about when you are working on the actual design, you're right. Like in, in brew crafters, uh, they craft brewers have to clean the floor of their brewery, right? So they have to sweep up and they have to get all the, the dust and the dirt out of the machinery, but that's not really the fun part, right? I don't want to have people taking an action in a board game that is like, Oh, I'm sweeping up the floor of my brewery. So uh, so that is something that I felt like I could remove from the game, uh, but still be able to faithfully stick with uh, the, the theme and the mechanics of what I really wanted to get across about uh, about running a craft beer brewery and the uh, beer brewing process uh, without putting in those things that are just going to be boring to players. Uh, and that uh, honestly, they're not really going to miss if they're not there. So and I think this gets to what you were saying. Um, is a fan of football going to miss penalties if they're not there? Probably, but are they going to miss timeouts? Maybe not, right? So in your game, you probably don't need a mechanic that says, okay, I'm calling a timeout and we're just going to sit here for two minutes and think about what we're going to do. 
that's probably something that you don't need in the game, whereas maybe penalties are something that you do need into the game. So so what are people, what are you going to be able to take out of the system to make it work as a board game, uh, but but not have people actually miss it? Yeah, it's a good point. And another thing you can do is mess with the theme just a little bit. And so whenever I removed penalties from my football game, I made the game dungeon monsters instead of actual regular human players, right? And all of a sudden it made sense because like monsters don't care. Like, wait, no, they know penalties in dungeon monster ball. You know, like who? No, no, no. I'm going to rip your arm off. I'm going to beat you with it. And that's perfectly legal. And so you can also tweak the theme a little bit to get around some of these things where someone's like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, it does in this, inside this theme. Like, oh, okay, yeah. Um, so I think that's one one thing you can do as a, a designer. Totally. I think when you do that, you are starting to move from systems modeling to world building, right? Because there are no real, you know, monsters playing football. So that is starting to then move from, okay, now I'm not so much modeling that system. I'm, I'm building a world now because this is something based on fictionalized events that don't really happen which is totally fine to do. Um, but, you know, just kind of there is a line that you cross there where you're like, well, I'm no longer modeling a system. Now I'm kind of building a world and that's totally fine to do. And it, it gives you a lot more ability to kind of go off of the guardrails uh, of what that actual system is. Uh, and, you know, that's the fun thing about being a game designer. You get to make that choice in which way you want to go. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let's talk about that a little, little bit deeper because I feel like very few games are 100% either way, right? And if and if, if it is, you've, you've probably got a simulation. You know, I'm reminded of Microsoft's pilot simulator, flight simulator, whatever it is. Like, it's so much of a, a, a good simulation that you can get hours towards your pilot license. <laughs> like, you can play a video game and it count for real life hours towards your license, which blows my mind, but it's that good of a simulation. So there's that on one end of the spectrum and then on, on the other is just... I don't know, maybe just nothing but world building. But I feel like even nothing but world building games still have some kind of real life something involved. So tell me about that as far as like the hybrid nature where it's never probably never 100 percent one way or the other. Yeah, I agree. It's it's probably never 100 percent one way or the other. Um, some examples we talked about Agricola. Uh, I think that's much more systems modeling than world building. However, there are occupation cards in Agricola and the people represented on them it's kind of a world building aspect of that game because there's these, they're not based on real people who did real jobs necessarily. They're just kind of special powers and special abilities in the game uh, and, and not totally based on, on real life. And so, uh, you know, also in the middle ages, it was not a law or a reality that you uh, had to live in a house of at least three rooms before you were allowed to have a baby. So there's a little bit of world building in that game as well, right? And I'm going to create these rules and I'm going to build this world where you have to grow your house first before you can have kids. So um, Agricola, not 100% systems modeling, but I think very much on the side of systems modeling. On the other hand, you have something like maybe Rising Sun, uh, which I think is mostly world building even if it has a reasonably accurate map of Japan and could be said to be very loosely based on actual Japanese clans that might have existed uh, years ago. So you might have some start with some kind of systems modeling, but very quickly that game gets into world building and, and being based on fictionalized events with uh, all kinds of creatures and monsters and things like that. So, um, and then there are a lot of games that fall somewhere in the middle. Uh, Honey Buzz comes to mind, which is a great game. Uh, it's clearly a fictionalized world with anthropomorphic bees. Uh, bees don't 
in the real world actually go to market and sell their honey. So this is a world building type of game, but at its heart, it models how bees really build their hives and work together to accomplish communal goals in the real world. Uh, so, so honey buzz is something that kind of sits to me right in the middle. It's got world building and it's got, uh, and it's got systems modeling. Um, and there's everything else in the middle and along that spectrum. I also think that there are many games that can fall outside of this general discussion altogether. So abstract games like Blockus, for instance, isn't really either. It's not really modeling a system and it's not really building a world. It's just kind of an abstract puzzle game about putting polyomino Tetris pieces together. Uh, and that's fine too. And that probably doesn't really fit anywhere within our dichotomy of world building and system modeling. Right. You know, games like tic-tac-toe or something like that, where it's just like, okay, this is, this is just a game. Uh, that's all it is. We're not really trying to simulate anything. I mean, chess, what do you think about chess though? Cause it's, it's warriors. It's, it's a battleground. It's a very much a, a abstracted out simulation of war. Like tell me about abstract games like that, that are kind of modeling quote unquote war, but not exactly. How does that fall? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. I was thinking about that uh, before the podcast. I think chess is more, definitely on the systems modeling side. I think it does try to model uh, two armies that are uh, that have different units that behave in different ways and uh, being a, um, a battle for kind of supremacy in, in, in a given area. And so it is definitely on the systems modeling side. I don't see a lot of world building there, but as an abstract game, yeah, there's only so much uh, that it's trying to accurately reflect uh, that system. Uh, but but definitely lands for me on the systems modeling side. Yeah, and I guess it really depends on your zoom, like how much you zoom in or zoom out. Chess is zoomed like all the way out. I mean, it's just so it's abstracted out all the way. <laughs> but I guess you have to choose how far you're going to zoom in or zoom out for the system. I was talking about my my trash truck idea game earlier, and like that's very much a, a city. But then you could also zoom out and you could do like a region and you could have different trash trucks you know, moving around different cities as opposed to in one specific town. Uh, you could go all the way nationwide and you've got your trash truck empire <laughs> in your country or something like that. And so tell me about your, your thoughts as far as like how to know how far to zoom in, how far to zoom out, when to when to do one or the other. Great question. Uh, personally, I prefer kind of a medium, what I'll define as a medium zoom level, and I'll talk about what I mean about that. Uh, and uh, when I'm designing games based on real world systems. And what I mean by that is not getting into the actual physics or chemistry or biology of the real world system. So being at a level above that or a level higher than that, uh, I want the gameplay uh, at the level, uh, at a medium zoom level to uh, to be at the level of a typical person's understanding of the system. So I want a typical person who's playing the game to imagine uh, being in the situation that the game is modeling and, and understanding what's happening around them. So I'll, I'll give some examples of this. Uh, Genius Games, which makes some amazing scientific base games like Cytosis and Subatomic, they're intended to really teach you about the actual chemistry and the actual biology. I think that's that's terrific. So that's at a very zoomed in level, right? You're learning about the parts of a different cell, super zoomed in. Uh, as a player, personally, I find it a little difficult to really understand what's going on because 
I'm not a biologist. So all these terms and all these parts of the cell, it almost becomes kind of abstract for me. I understand that it's modeling the real system of what's happening in the real world. And it's doing that very well. But it's so zoomed in that I'm having a hard time really understanding what's actually happening and the game becomes abstract. So I like to zoom out a bit. Uh, So for instance, I talked about First in Flight, which is the game that we've got coming out about the Wright brothers. The game doesn't really teach you about the physics of flight, right? So you don't need to learn equations about how flight actually works in the physical world. Rather, it models the inherent risk and instability in a brand new technology and tracks the progress that the Wright brothers went through from their initial short flights to being able to sustain themselves in the air for hours at a time. So it's zoomed out enough where it's it's still about a specific person or group of people in a specific time. It's not zoomed out so far that it's just little airplanes going around a map and there's no personality to it, but it's also not zoomed in so much that you are having to struggle with equations about physics that you really don't understand and really can't comprehend anyway. So this kind of medium zoom level, I think, is a great place to be when you are modeling uh, systems and games. Well, I think it's also a great place to be when you want to sell games. <laughs> I feel like if you the more systems oriented you get, the smaller your target audience potentially becomes because you're you're just you're weeding out a lot of people, like you said, that might be interested in it if the game was a little more zoomed out. But because it's so zoomed in and it's like so technical and there's a lot of stuff going on, it's kind of like the flight simulator game. Like that's a very specific audience that wants to play that game. And they're probably trying to get their pilot license. Like they're very interested in the very specific real world situations of flying a plane. I would rather uh, not do that. I would rather worry about flying my plane and, and, kind of having fun with it and going here and flying over there and doing this. And I'm not worried about the altitude and the gauges and the fuel level and all that kind of stuff. I would rather just chuck some dice and see what happens. Like I'm not going to play flight simulator, but I would play a zoomed out version of that game where, you know, we're doing something else still in the same system, but you know, doing something different. So I feel like from a audience standpoint, a marketing standpoint, a business standpoint, it's also something to, to think about. Is that something also that you've kind of thought about? It's like, okay, I'm getting too specific here. Let me zoom out a little bit because I'm, I'm going to be too niche and I'm not going to have enough audience to really buy the game. Uh, I tend to, I tend to not think about that quite as much. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a publisher and, and I don't think too much about, about the marketing and, uh, and kind of the audience for a game. Um, I stick to the, uh, you know, a lot of designers say this kind of design games for yourself uh, and the, what, what, I design games at the level that is most fun for me to interact with them. And I find that to be that kind of medium zoom level. I totally agree, right? The the more you're zooming in, like those genius games that we talked about, you are going to have more of a niche audience. So I do think pulling back a little bit is is going to be is going to be helpful and allow it to engage with it and reach a broader audience. Um, but it's yeah, it's just how how far out do I need to come to make the system understandable and to uh, but still to be able to faithfully match those mechanics to the theme, like I talked about before, um, you know, ticket to ride is that's, that's a systems modeling to some extent, but it's so zoomed out and kind of abstracted. Yeah. It's you're building trains and you're putting routes down and I, you know, uh, companies that, that you know, tr- train companies do this, they lay track. But it's so zoomed out, it's so impersonal that it's not, it's not, can't really model an actual system because it, it gets kind of abstracted at that point. So 
basically how, how far out do I need to come? Uh, but don't go so far out that you lose the actual system that you're wanting to model where the game becomes just an abstract representation of something. Yeah, that's a good point. Ticket to Ride doesn't feel like I'm building railroad companies or train tracks. It feels like I'm playing cards and then things are happening, you know. And so I feel like that's something also just to kind of think about as far as your your feel going going back to that. Yeah, it totally depends on what your your goal is, right? So Ticket's Ride, hugely successful game, right? So you can be successful when you pull out on the Zoom level. But if your intent is to model a real world system, then I think Ticket to Ride is too far zoomed out to actually be modeling a real world system. Gotcha. All right, let's talk about systems a little bit more as far as what are good systems to model? You know, I, I mentioned my, my trash truck thing. I, I said that because today is trash day. I had to take my trash cans out hurriedly earlier so I didn't miss, miss the truck. So it's like on my mind. That's why this is popping up in my head. But how do I know if that's a good system to then spend my time researching, figuring out me- mechanisms and, and game, the way the game plays, as opposed to just being a waste of time, do you have any like rules of thumb as far as like which, which systems turn into good games? I have a, a few things. Uh, I think, first of all, you want to do something that's fun and interesting for you. So the, the topic uh, should be something that you are interested in engaging with as a designer. That, that always holds true. Uh, past that, it should be something that is intuitively understood by people. And I touched on this a little bit earlier. Uh, and we talked about this with the Zoom level going in too far. Uh, it can, can, you can lose that. That's something that people can intuitively understand. It should be something that's not super easy to do in the real world. We talked about that with the example of going and shooting a basketball at the park, which is super easy for a person to do in the real world. So makes not as interesting of a system to model. Uh, and then it should be more fun or cheaper or take way less time to model than it actually does in the real world. So that's where we talked about farming before, right? It's it's more fun to farm uh, than it is to actually, uh, to, in a board game, than it is to actually go and do it because it's, it's sweat and backbreaking work and it's cheaper to do and it takes less time to do it. Uh, so I think if it's intuitively understand, not super easy to do in the real world and easier fun and takes less time to do in uh, in board games, that's, that, that's a good start of a system to model. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's get a little bit more into your personal design space. Let's uh, let's look behind the curtain for a minute. So let's say you're walking down the road, normal, typical day. You see something, right? You see a, a system being modeled in real life. Now what? Tell me how your brain works as far as turning this idea, this system in the real world into an actual playable game. You know, you don't necessarily have to go step by step. I'm sure it's a little bit different every single time, but just in general, what's your process? Well, uh, my process is to uh, start start thinking, and I talked about before about matching those uh, mechanics to the theme. Okay, so this is a system I want to model, and I'll use a game that uh, is going to be coming up uh, next year for me, which is called Fromage, about making an aging cheese. And so we wanted to uh, make a game about this, about small scale cheese producers uh, that are that are making and aging their own cheese, uh, and so. To do this, uh, first you have to think. Well, what? How does this? Uh, what? What makes sense for for this game? Um, and so, uh, right away, you can think of certain mechanics that just are are not going to make sense for this, uh, and and throw those out right away. And so, uh, once you get down to uh, okay, I think that um, I think that okay, this is about 
you have some workers that are working. Hey, worker placement kind of feels like it might be the thing here uh, for being a small batch cheese producer in a company that's got a few people there making cheese. Okay, so I think I think worker placement might work. Okay, now how can I take that and really integrate that with the theme and not just do standard worker placement, but actually uh, actually put a little twist on it, put a little twist on those mechanics that's going to say, ah, yeah, okay, this makes sense with cheese. Um, and what we did with fromage is we thought about, okay, a cheese wheel, uh, you buy a, a wheel of cheese at the store and it's this circular wheel. Uh, and so what if the game board was a circle that everybody had access to a certain part of the board at the same time where you were doing your worker placement and then the entire board rotates like a lazy Susan uh, so that you can uh, get access to a new uh, a, a new quadrant of the board, a new slice of the cheese wheel and do new worker placement on that slice of the cheese wheel. So kind of taking that theme of cheese and uh, the, the physical uh, kind of representation of a cheese wheel uh, and allowing it to be, it's actually a simultaneous worker placement game, um, which is great because it cuts down on the time. Uh, but it, just kind of thinking through, how can I put a twist on worker placement that makes sense for making cheese to really engage with that with that theme of cheese? Um, another small example is in Brewcrafters, which is, is also a worker placement game, uh, which was uh, the, the mechanics of that I, I borrowed a lot from Agricola, which is one of my favorite games at the time. Uh, but what didn't make sense to me in Agricola was that there are certain actions that you're taking inside your own house, like extending your home or growing your family, uh, that uh, are, are still blocked by the worker placement spots in Agricola. Right? If you grow your family, I can't grow my family in the game. And that doesn't really make sense in the real world because... One couple has a baby doesn't prevent another couple from also having a baby in the real world. So that game doesn't do a good job of modeling family growth in the real world. Uh, so I wanted to uh, to kind of put my own twist on those Agricola worker placement mechanics for Brewcrafters. And so we broke the worker placement uh, into two distinct phases where you have the market phase with your worker placement where you are actually competing for goods and raw materials and ingredients in the market like real brewers really would because they have to go to the market to buy ingredients. But then you get to come home and do worker placement inside your own brewery, which is not competing with other people. Because just because I'm brewing beer in my brewery doesn't mean that you can't also be brewing beer in your brewery at the same time. So taking typical worker placement and then putting that twist on it to match your theme and to marry your theme and your mechanics so that you more accurately and faithfully represent the system that you are trying to model is, is where I go uh, with my design. So how can I take traditional mechanics and, and make them really match up to what's actually happening in the real world? Yeah, I like that. And I call it the sense test. Does this make sense? And like you're, to your point, you know, being able to brew at your own brewery, it makes sense that I can do that and you can't affect that because it's not your house. You know, you're not the power company shutting my power off like you you do your thing, I'll do mine. But when we go to the marketplace, there's a limited number of hops and all the other resources and things like that. So it is it does make sense that we would have to kind of battle it out, so to speak, about uh, these resources. So that does make sense. And so I love I love that mentality of, OK, does this make sense? 
And if it doesn't, then you better have a really good reason why you're doing it. You know, uh, does it make sense to pull something out of a game? Well, it makes the game a whole lot more fun. Okay, well, that might make sense. <laughs> I, I love that phrase, the sense test. Uh, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to write that down and just keep it on my whiteboard because I, I think that that's, I think it's a really good reality check when you're doing a system building game. I think that's a great term. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's, in, in my experience, one of the first things players at the table are going to say, this doesn't make sense. Why are we doing it this way? This this is not how it happens in the real world. And all of a sudden, you have totally broken the verisimilitude. You've broken the imagination of the game because you had this thing in there that doesn't make sense. And now if you can explain it with a, a thematic reason, then okay, then players can get around that. But if not, it's going to mess up their experience potentially. Not everybody. Obviously, not everybody thinks in that way. Some people, they just play a game at face value and that's all it is. But there's lots of players that they want to be immersed they're playing this game because they want to feel like they're making craft beer. They want to play this game because it feels like they're farming. And so if you're doing anything that pulls them out of that feeling, out of that uh, immersion, then again, you better have a really good reason because people are going to notice. And on the flip side, if you do things in your game that makes sense, it makes people more immersed. It brings them more into the experience, into the imagination of what's going on in this game. And it's going to help you have uh, happier players are going to have a better time. You're going to sell more copies because it makes since. So I think that's definitely something to uh, just keep in mind as you're designing these games. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, you've mentioned worker placement several times. Let's talk about mechanisms. Are there certain mechanisms that just lend themselves to these styles of games? It seems like worker placement makes sense. I, I can feel like deck building might make sense if you're trying to simulate the amount of time that goes by. And, you know, there's certain systems that that might make make sense. Um, but what are your thoughts as far as like specific mechanisms? I'm glad you asked that because I gave two examples just now of worker placement. And I don't want to say that worker placement is the way to go when you're modeling systems. That, that was just two examples that both happened to be worker placement. I really think that you should be thinking about what, what makes sense for uh, for my theme. How can I faithfully match the mechanics to the theme? So um, if deck building is right, deck building might be right. So uh, if for our game, First in Flight, it actually uses Again, it uses deck building, but it uses a twist on deck building that we actually call um, deck discovery, uh, because in the early days of flight, they didn't really know what was going to happen when they went up in the airplane. They're like, I think we're going to be okay. I think this is going to work, but nobody's ever done this before. I don't really know what's going to go wrong. What could the possible problems be? And they really didn't have a good sense for what could possibly go wrong. And so in our, in our game, you are building a deck to allow you to fly farther and farther and farther. But there are random problems that are being inserted into this deck that you don't know about. They come in face down into your deck and you only learn about what the problems are with your plane as you are flying and flipping over cards. You are discovering these problems that pop up seemingly out of nowhere and you go, oh no, there's something wrong with the the lift system, okay, that's something that I'm going to have to fix before my next flight. Uh, just And then that really models what the Wright brothers were going through, right? They went up, they, they, they documented what happened, they documented what the problems were, and they said, okay, well, we had this problem that we weren't expecting. Let's go try to fix that. Uh, and so... Um, take, so deck building seemed to work there, but also like I talked about putting that twist in for how can I really make deck building feel like learning how to fly an airplane, whereas I don't know how to, if I was someone that didn't know how to fly, what would deck building look like in that scenario? So um, I think that deck building can work, you know, in the, the, the search for Planet X, which is another 
real world a system uh, that we modeled in a game. No deck building, no 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 dice, no set collection. That's really about well. What are what are the astronomers really trying to do that are looking for this new planet? Well, they're scanning the sky, they're learning information, and they're using that information to deduce other things about the sky uh, and other bodies that are out there. And so that just made sense. A logical deduction just fit right away for the search for Planet X. That probably, that game would not make sense as a deck building game or a dice rolling, you know, dice placement set collection game. It makes sense as a logical deduction game. That's what the real astronomers are doing in the real world. So really you can use any system, you can use any, uh, sorry, any mechanic, you can use any component when you're modeling systems, but you really should be thinking what makes sense for this game? And then how can I take that and put a further twist on it to kind of further marry and integrate the theme and the mechanics for this system that I'm trying to model. Yeah, I like that a lot. And it's actually one of my favorite parts of game design is figuring out the right mechanism that has the best feel, that makes the most sense for this particular game, theme, moment, whatever it is. It's And it's almost like the aha moment, the eureka moment. You're like, ah, this is the one. This fits really, really well. I was working on a farming game oh, a couple of years ago. And I wanted to simulate time, right? Because you don't you don't have a seed and then you water it and it just magically grows right then. It's not Harvest Moon. It's not Stardew Valley. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And um, and so I was like, right, how do you simulate time? It's like, well, deck building simulates passage of time because okay, you water the seed and now you get to draw a a sapling card or you know a small plant card or something like that, and it goes into your discard pile and you're going to have to wait until that card cycles back through and then you can put it on top of the seed and now it's the simu- simulating growth. But you have to wait a certain amount of time. And it's like, okay, that makes sense. Now, the game didn't go very much further than there because I ran into some other obstacles that I couldn't overcome and I was like, eh, let's go do something else. <laughs> but it, it at least made sense to use that mechanism for that theme because you know simulating the passage of time. And so any, do you have any other moments like that where you're like, okay, this is just the perfect mechanism and you kind of figured it out maybe after trial and error maybe trying worker placement trying different things and going okay no this is the one that works the best um i think uh you know i think every game every game that uh, gets far enough to get published has has a moment like that um one that i can uh think about uh, maybe is uh we have a game about making uh, sustainable seafood choices as a consumer uh, called Seafood Watch, uh, which uh, hopefully is going to be coming out in the next couple of years, uh, which was very intentionally to model this system of uh, you are a consumer and you want to protect the world's oceans. And so you want to make sustainable choices uh, on um, on seafood. Uh, and we originally had this mechanic where you walked into the store that you wanted to buy uh, food from, and you just kind of knew everything that there was to know about this uh, about each piece of kind of seafood that was in the store. And then you made a decision about which one you wanted to buy. And we thought, well, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't actually really represent the real world, right? When I walk into a store, I see a piece of fish sitting there and it might say salmon, it might say farm raised salmon, or it might say wild caught salmon, but there's a lot more information behind that that I really need to know if I'm going to actually make sustainable choices when I'm buying seafood. So we took out that kind of perfect information system um, and put in a system where you have a limited number of questions that you can ask about this particular seafood in order to try to figure out which one is the best one that you are uh, that that you wanna that you wanna purchase. Uh, and so 
Yeah. So that's just another small example about, well, you know, this system actually over models, you know, it's too perfect information and the real world isn't really like that. So how can we pull that back and more, more faithfully uh, represent things that are, that are actually happening when you walk into a store and you're looking at a piece of fish and deciding whether you want to buy it or not. Yeah, very cool. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's uh, let's talk about play testing. What are the things you're looking at as far as watching the players' data? You're you're taking taking in information you're writing down in your notes during play testing. Tell me tell me about that as far as these kinds of games. Yeah. So uh, first of all, uh, I want to say that you should do play testing with people that are uh, involved in the in the theme or in the field. So for the search for Planet X we actually brought the game to astronomy conventions and play tested with actual astronomers or people that are, are, are amateur astronomers that are super interested in the real search for Planet X and put the game in front of them and had them play and give us feedback. For brewcrafters and homebrewers, I play tested the game with real homebrewers, people that actually homebrew beer. Uh, for that Seafood Watch game that I just talked about, we actually contacted the Monterey Bay Aquarium in California, uh, the people that run the Seafood Watch program, and actually had somebody from the Monterey Bay Aquarium play the game and give us feedback on uh, on the game. So we want to know from the people that really know this system really well in the real world, what do they think about it? How accurate do they think the theme and the mechanics kind of marry to each other? Uh, and what can we learn from them to further refine the game and do an even better job of modeling the system in the real world? So I definitely want to encourage that, not just playing the game with your local play testers. If you're doing a farming game, try to find somebody that that is a farmer or that grew up on a farm and play test the game with them because uh, you'll, you'll just get better and more accurate feedback. Um, aside from that, I think that, you know, all the same kind of uh, play testing uh, types of advice, uh, you know, uh, apply um, in, uh, in in a game about systems modeling, uh, just to, in a game about real world uh, world building or um, an abstract game. Um, but uh, going to the source of of the, you want to talk to the experts and see what they think, uh, and you're going to get some excellent points and excellent ideas uh, and feedback that you wouldn't get just from uh, your normal normal play testers. Yeah, that's a really good point. Are you also taking in information, going back to the feel, are you asking players at the end, hey, did you did it feel like this? Did you? How did you feel? Are you, are you going into the emotions side of things to trying to try to figure that out? Yeah, I, I think definitely those are, yeah, definitely good questions to ask. Um, again, if you're at that medium Zoom level and you want somebody to be able to intuitively understand and get into this, you can ask questions like, what would you have expected to be in this game that wasn't in this game, right? When I told you this was a game about running a craft brewery, what were your initial expectations and how did that, how was that a mismatch from the game that I actually showed you? Or what is here in this game that you think doesn't make sense? What is here in this game that you're like, well, I don't think it really works that way in the real world. So asking those pointed questions, I think can be super helpful when you're playtesting a game about systems, uh, modeling systems. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, as far as managing player expectation, because we've all probably played a game where we had an idea going in of what the game was going to be, what it was going to be about, how it was going to play, and then it was totally different. And that totally different game might be really good, but if you went in thinking one thing and it was something totally different, 
there's a good chance you didn't have as much fun as you as you would have because you had a, a totally different expectation. And so do you have any advice on how to help manage those expectations? expectations how to i mean you just mentioned one thing it's huge and just play testing and asking people <laughs> what did you expect that wasn't here or what did you expect that is here that maybe we can lean in into but anything else as far as the the expectations and, and managing that and making sure you're delivering what players want uh i think beyond that you could probably start thinking about components a little bit and kind of what what makes sense uh, we're doing a game a follow-up to the search for planet x which is about uh the search for lost species uh, which is a real-world search uh, that uh, that is undertaken to reestablish contact with species of animals that science knows exists and has documented, but that humans have lost contact with over the years. And there are conservationists that go out into the wild trying to reestablish contact with these species to see how they're doing to help them out. So this is very much a game about, uh, you know, conservation, environmentalism, uh, these things, uh, species protection are really important. So we absolutely did not want to use any plastic whatsoever in this game, right? Like no plastic miniatures. In, in Search for Planet X, there were plastic miniatures. We're not going to do that in this game. So that's part of, you can even with the components, what is the expectation for um, to match the theme and, and modeling that system in the real world and, and kind of what would a player expect uh, to be engaging with to help them get into this theme? So it's a very, it's a very earthy theme. Uh, whereas Search for Planet X is a very extraterrestrial theme, right? It's not an earthy theme. It's about what is outside of our Earth. So plastic made more sense as a component, um, but it doesn't in a game that's trying to model something that's very organic. Uh, and so you can even think, start thinking about your components uh, and what kind of components can I use to help people kind of intuitively get into this game, interact with the game, and to set their expectations for what this game is really about. Yeah, definitely. And, that's, and a lot of this stuff is also from a more of a publishing standpoint, not necessarily just a game design thing as far as components and things like that. I guess art also is a main factor in managing expectations. I played a, a Cthulhu game a while back that the cover, the box art was epic. Like it was like, oh man, this is going to be a really gritty kind of interesting adventure style game. And then we got into playing it and it was almost like a party game. Like it was silly and had like a lot of goofy things going on. You're like, oh, like, I didn't know this and the game was fine. And again, if I had had, if, if the cover had been kind of zany, <laughs> had been kind of silly, goofy kind of thing, like, oh, okay, this is going to be a goofy little Cthulhu game. Cool. I'm sure I would have had a great time, but going into it, expecting this like totally different adventure, uh, it was like, uh, the game was meh. It was fine, but is, is expectation. And so I guess arts and, and cover art and that kind of stuff really goes into this as well. Yeah, I think, I think that's great. And, uh, the, the, yeah, that's this totally correct. You want to you want to set the the feeling and the expectation based on how serious you are taking the subject matter with the with the art that you're creating. Definitely. Well, Ben, this has been been great. Any, as far as closing thoughts, what would you say to someone to encourage them? Maybe they're listening to this. They're thinking, oh, man, I've got this idea for a real life system. I could turn it into a game. What would you tell somebody that's thinking about it? I would say. Do what, do what interests you, do what you find interesting. Uh, what excites you about this system, right? Why do you want to be modeling the system in the first place? What is interesting to you about it? And, and try to take that as the core of your design and then build around that. Uh, and if you, can, um, if you can faithfully represent what is interesting to you, it'll probably be interesting to somebody else as well. Yeah, absolutely. Ben, uh, tell me about what you got going on. You've mentioned First in Flight. You mentioned several of your other games. Anything else you want to shout out or, or tell people about that's coming up? 
Uh, yeah, it talks about uh, First in Flight, which is that game about the Wright brothers and the invention of powered flight, that deck discovery game. Uh, that's going to be on Kickstarter June 7th from Artana Games. Uh, so we're excited about that. Uh, the Search for Lost Species, uh, the follow-up to Search for Planet X, again, an app-based logical deduction game. Uh, that will be out later this year or early next year. Uh, Fromage, which is that simultaneous worker placement uh, game about making an aging cheese, uh, will be on Kickstarter probably later this year uh, and out uh, next year from uh, R2i Games, the ones that did Canvas. Uh, beyond that, uh, I've got that uh, some other games coming out. Uh, the one about Seafood Watch, which is about making sustainable seafood choices. Uh, and then one that uh, that I've been working on about uh, designing, uh, uh, sorry, about manufacturing board games. So um, some people may know that I work for Panda Game Manufacturing and we, we make and manufacture board games. And that's been a topic that I've wanted to model for a long time. What is it like to manufacture board games? And so uh, I'm working on a game about that right now uh, and modeling, which obviously something that is a real world system. So um, yeah, excited about what's, uh, what's coming up and um, and who knows what the next uh, system will be, but always trying to keep my, my eyes and ears open and uh, just see, uh, see what, might be, what might be next. That's awesome. And I'm obviously very interested in your game manufacturing game, a very meta uh, thing that you got going on there. And um, maybe you can even put Panda in it. Maybe they'll license it. You know, they'll, you can have them as a, a part of the game and they give you a little discount or something like that. I don't know. But uh, that sounds very cool. And um, but yeah, anyway, uh, Ben, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with so many cool games that you're working on and everything else you got going on right now. Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate uh, you having me on. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?